Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening at the beginning of a new week. Thank you for viewing ADH. I can confirm that people are joining us in their thousands for which we are all very grateful. Don't forget, if you miss something, it doesn't matter. It's there on the app ADH on your smart TV or smartphone. But it's also all there on the website ADH.TV. Don't forget the dot. I know you're now watching me live, but you can watch whenever it suits you. It's called On Demand, and we're there whenever you want to turn us on. Plenty on the menu tonight. As you will have heard at the weekend, the CEO of Snowy Hydro 2.0, the Turnbull baby, has resigned after nine years, because project costs have blown out by billions, what does this mean to the fanciful nonsense trotted out by Chris Bowen as energy policy? I spoke to you last week about this World Economic Forum and the determination to reset our world. And when you look at what's happening in the classroom and the way our freedoms were taken away from us last year, parliaments were shut down, the reset is happening. Globalisation means a direct assault on national sovereignty. The opening keynote speaker at this year's Davos conference was the freedom-loving dictator President Xi of China. I'll look at that in some detail tonight. And that awful scourge of drugs and appalling stories at the weekend about the ice epidemic, it's Australia-wide. But the New South Wales government have no excuse. They've had a report for almost four years and have done nothing. I'll look at that too in some detail. So they have now dragged in Shaquille O'Neal to... <laughs> to spruik, S-P-R-U-I-K, to spruik the... I didn't think that was that hard to say. To spruik the voice to Parliament. What would Shaquille O'Neal know about our Constitution? Are they getting frightened already in Canberra that if they tell us nothing, we're likely to vote for not changing the Constitution? I'll make some reference tonight to a magnificent production of the Opera House at the Opera House of Andrew Lloyd Webb's Phantom of the Opera, some glorious singing. But our Prime Minister is singing off a different sheet of paper. I don't think they're talking about Scott Morrison in the pub, but they are talking about how much it costs to put food on the table. And so far, nothing from government to address the problem. And a final comment I'll make on the energy crisis, which is extraordinary. We are, as I've told you many times, a raw materials superpower, and yet energy prices are going through the roof. That is, if we can be guaranteed that the lights will turn on. I have some telling statistics to share with you. So, as we say, put on your riding silks, get into the saddle. We're going to have a very smooth ride tonight. You're watching ADH TV. I'm Alan Jones. Well, a political honeymoon for any new government can only last so long. I return to the certain truth that what the Energy Minister Bowen is talking about as an energy policy will prove to be a diabolical disaster, and things are already heading in that direction. 
The further trouble is that the Prime Minister is not on top of this detail. It was in April this year, that's before the election, that AGL Energy and Snowy Hydro questioned the blueprint for the electricity grid. This was, as I said, before the election. They argued that the assumptions used to model fast coal plant retirements and critical transmission projects, that is getting electricity from where you might produce it, if there are farms of solar panels and turbines in remote areas, you've got to get the electricity onto the grid, transmission costs. So in April, these two power giants, AGL Energy and Snowy Hydro, questioned the modelling and argued this nonsense about retiring coal plants may well result, their words, in higher costs, project delays and an increased risk of blackouts. Then last December, the Australian energy market operator released a plan which argued that coal was being removed from Australia's electricity system up to a decade earlier than planned, exiting three times faster than expected, and we would need a nine-fold increase in wind and solar by 2050 to meet net zero targets. Bowen has ignored all of this. Coal provides up to 70% of current electricity to capacity. Well now, add to all of this nightmare the Malcolm Turnbull initiated Snowy 2.0 project, because the previous Snowy Hydro scheme is Snowy 1, you see, so Snowy 2.0, previously described as a critical part of developing long-term storage, that it would allegedly sustain electricity supplies when intermittent renewables fail to deliver. Now, have a look at the re recent British experience, and indeed the global trend, there's a shortfall of energy once coal is sidelined. But we're not prepared to learn the lessons from Europe. At best, the share of renewable energy today at its peak, if the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, is only 30%. But it's got to go to 82% in eight years. You'll need endless wind and solar projects and billions of dollars of extra grid infrastructure. Yet now, the Snowy Hydro CEO, Paul Broad, has resigned following claims by the contractor Future Generation Joint Venture that the project has blown out by $2.2 billion. We've had energy policies in the past, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, Emissions Trading Scheme, National Energy Guarantee. None have survived, nor have the Prime Ministers who proposed them. But we're meant to trust politicians with our future energy needs based on ideological claptrap. Snowy Hydro 2.0 is a complex engineering project that aims to put a new underground power station in a remote corner of the Snowy Mountains to shore up the nation's electricity supply. What's the fate of this Snowy 2.0? Well, exploratory works haven't even begun. The original Snowy Hydro scheme after the war was the largest engineering project the nation has ever seen, diverting water, as you know, from high country rivers to generate hydroelectric power and support irrigation. Snowy Hydro 2.0 aims to link two of the reservoirs in the northern reaches of Kosciuszko National Park, Talbingo and Tantangara. Now, the premise is this. When wind and solar farms are generating more energy than needed, when will that be? That extra power would be used to pump water in Talbingo up through 26 kilometres of underground pipeline to Tantangara. When the wind and solar can't meet demand, that water would be drawn back down the tunnel through turbines to generate hydroelectricity. Hence the argument by some that pumping the water uphill will involve more energy than will be generated by bringing the water downhill. We don't know whether that's true or not. The Snowy Hydro 2.0 has to be deep underground. The tunnel has to pass through five different types of rock three major fault zones and five rivers and creeks. But cop this, the exploratory work hasn't even started, yet it will determine whether Snowy 2.0 is feasible and economically viable. They have to drill a tunnel eight metres high and eight metres wide to assess the rock type and then hopefully reach the site of the underground power station. The station and its turbines will then be housed in an enormous cavern drilled out of the rock 850 metres below the surface of the Kosciuszko National Park. And this cavern would need to be 190 metres long, 55 metres high and 30 metres wide 
and strict environmental conditions will be attached to protect the flora and fauna. The estimate is that the project will cost somewhere between 3.8 billion and 4.5 billion, but then the transmission network to distribute the power across the eastern states will cost another 2 billion and could end up costing billions of dollars more. And don't you love this? The feasibility study finds, quote, there are risks, opportunities and contingency amounts that significantly affect the estimated cost, unquote. But the entire chapter in the feasibility study on the cost estimate has been redacted. Commercial in confidence, a secret. What are we on about in relation to Morrison's secrets? So where are we today? Well, if all goes to plan, we're told Snowy 2.0 could be completed, could be completed by 2025. But the sole shareholder of the Commonwealth, on our behalf, our money, has to give the green light. And that's not possible until the exploratory works are completed and they haven't even started. All this because in the last decade, nearly 7,000 megawatts of baseload generation, about an eighth of our needs, have been shut down as coal-fired power stations have been retired. And between now and 2050, another 16,000 megawatts will be shut down and they won't be replaced by new coal-fired power stations. When we have the cleanest and best coal in the world, which we will export, so that other countries can burn it and create carbon dioxide emissions and have cheap electricity. And you think this nation hasn't gone nuts? Yet you have some people advising the government saying we could have 100% renewables by 2030. What did I say at the beginning? The assumptions used to model coal plant retirements and transmission projects may result in higher costs, project delays and an increased risk of blackouts. That warning from AGL Energy and Snowy Hydro, the outfit responsible for Snowy 2.0, where the CEO of nine years has now resigned. This is all called Australia's energy policy. Well, now look, a week ago, I spoke to you about what I said you wouldn't hear anywhere else, but you would hear on this program because in other media, there are certain things you are not allowed to say. You're not allowed to differ from the so-called wisdom of the experts. I mentioned this outfit called the World Economic Forum. There has been a tremendous response online to what I had to say. I mentioned that the mission statement of this World Economic Forum says it is committed to, and I quote, improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industrial agendas, unquote. I mentioned the founder, this German economist, Klaus Schwab, who said in 2020, and I quote, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow opportunity to reflect, reimagine, here's the key word, and reset our world. All aspects of our societies and economies must be revamped, he said, from education to social contracts and working conditions, unquote. The key words, reset our world. Is that happening in our classroom and universities in what is being taught? One first-year university student told me recently he had to write an assignment on the impact of climate change on gender. <laughs> Reset our world. We had it in coronavirus. The total denial of freedom and the usurping of those freedoms by unelected bureaucrats and big government. I reminded you of the other odious individual, late Morris Strong, the godfather of climate change, who said in 1992, we may get to the point where the only way of saving the world will be for industrialised civilization to collapse. Isn't it our responsibility to bring this about? Unquote. And Schwab, the founder of this World Economic Forum, said we need a great reset of capitalism. When this mob, the World Economic Forum, were challenged two years ago to debate this question of climate emergency, they declined. Of course they would. Remember the founder, Klaus Schwab? means what he says, that all aspects of our societies and our economies must be revamped. Well, what's the easiest way to do that? Ignore and cancel anyone who disagrees, even when those who disagree are prepared to engage in climate debate, as the Friends of Science said, quote, with the sound and ancient principle that all pertinent parties should be fully heard, unquote. Well, this nonsense at the World Economic Forum goes on. Russian oligarchs and US billionaires flying in on private jets, banging on about global emissions and income inequality, African dictators screaming about climate change and the need for immediate compensation from the West, 
and the journalists and commentators just swallow this stuff. As Professor Judith Sloan, to whom I spoke last week, recently wrote, quote, they churn out puerile pieces about the wonderful reform reset initiatives being discussed by the hand-picked elites headed by the indestructible Klaus Schwab. Well, in 2021, a special address to this mob was delivered by Vladimir Putin. But who was the opening keynote speaker at this year's Davos conference? The freedom-loving dictator, President Xi of China. And amongst other things, he said, quote, economic globalisation is the trend of the times. Though the countercurrents are sure to exist in a river, none could stop the river from flowing to the sea. Despite the countercurrents and dangerous shoals, economic globalisation has never and will not veer off course, unquote. Who wrote this stuff? But there it is, economic globalisation, the Great Reset, rules established by the elites. Mind you, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions against Russia have given this surely a boot into the long grass. But remember what Otmar Edenhofer said 11 years ago at the Cancun, that's in Mexico, equivalent of the Glasgow Talk Fest of last year. This bloke Edenhofer is a German economist. He's regarded as one of the world's leading experts on climate change policy. And he said, basically, it's a big mistake to discuss climate policy separate from major themes of globalisation. The summit in Cancun at the end of the month is not a climate conference, but one of the largest ever economic conferences since the Second World War. One has to free oneself, he said, from the illusion that international climate policy is environmental policy. This has almost nothing to do with environmental policy anymore. This is about wealth transformation, unquote. Well, there aren't many who are prepared to bell the cap, but in that anthology of essays to which I've been referring, edited by the young man who replaced me on this program a couple of weeks ago, Jake Thrupp, Australia Tomorrow, Morris Newman, a distinguished Australian in public life and business and former Chancellor at Macquarie University, wrote an essay simply called The Great Reset, which he calls, quote, another fascist experiment being pushed by controlling elites. And Morris Newman joins me tonight. Morris, thank you for your time. I mean, how much information do you need to give politicians before they wake up? Well, thanks for having me on, Alan. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that politicians seem impervious to any reasoning. Uh, they won't listen to science. They won't listen to rational debate. They don't want to hear any of this stuff. And it's just getting uh, worse and worse. And if you look at the agenda of the World Economic Forum, it's essentially the radical Green uh, New Deal, which is being pushed in the United States. But you've got a, a cartel there. You've got government, big government, you've got uh, big corporations, you've got academia, and, and you've got the media. And these people all gather in Davos. I've been to Davos uh, a number of times, and it's very clear that uh, this is groupthink. They all think in the same way, and they're all, of course, uh, pointing in the direction of a socialist state. In fact, as you, you pointed out, they want to reset capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to change the world as we know it, and what, of course, ordinary people need to understand, that is people like you, me, and those people who are hardworking Australians and people around the world for that matter, is that they don't care about them. And I saw some statistics about Australia recently. Now, we've been going more and more towards the woke left for probably the last 30 to 40 years. And according to the Productivity Commission, per capita income in Australia, has been uh, never as low as it is now in that 60 years. And the wealth disparity, the gap between the rich and the poor in this country has never been wider. And that's been as a consequence of pursuing the very policies that the World Economic Forum are wanting to push down our throats. See, but you mentioned politicians. Now, at the height of the last federal election, Scott Morrison climbed into the Labor Party, Shorten's Labor Party. At the time, they weren't promising zero emissions. They're only promising a 45% reduction. But Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister Morrison said that this would cost an additional, his words, an additional 472 billion. He went on, I'm not kidding, 472 billion. It will slash more than 336,000 jobs. It will cut the average wage by over 9,000 a year. It will increase wholesale electricity prices by more than 58%. And the then Prime Minister said, that's not a sensible target. It's a reckless target, 
and it will come at a tremendous cost to Australians. 2019. A couple of years later, Morrison, uh, Morris, the same man, Morrison, rushed off to Glasgow and endorsed zero emissions. How does that make sense? Well, it's irreconcilable. And of course, the 43% reduction in emissions by 2030, which is the Labor Party's current policy, they know is delusional. It is not possible. It cannot be achieved. The, the problem is, what cost are we going to bear until that plain reality is going to be obvious to everybody, including them. You and I have talked before about this post-war Marxist manifesto by the former FBI agent W. Cleon Skusen in 1960 called The Naked Communist. Now, the manifesto was clear about reordering Western values and institutions to a one world government under the United Nations. Now, say this today, and of course, you're regarded as a conspiracist, but it's happening. I mean, the manifesto talks about capturing one or both of the major American political parties, of using the courts to weaken American institutions, of schools becoming transmission belts for socialist propaganda, softening up the curriculum, abolishing loyalty oaths. Morris, you and I have argued before, this is already here. Yes. And for those people, the, the, the uh, conspiracy theorist uh, remarks are the immediate response of the left if they want to destroy an argument. Mm. But it doesn't have to be some organised conspiracy. It can be a spontaneous, uh, a, a spontaneous order which is brought about by people of a similar mind who are mm. bent on achieving power. Mm. And what we're seeing, that you, as you've just pointed out, is exactly that. Yes, yes. I mean, the manifesto said, infiltrate the media. Hello? Control editorial writing. I mean, we're becoming a one-idea nation. There's a whole raft of things you're not allowed to say. I mean, key positions in radio, television, film, not here, go to sympathetic presenters. Yeah. Morris, we are Sorry, already at the point of reset, aren't we? We are, Alan, and I was just going to make the point. This becomes mutually reinforcing because the incentives are all directed in a way to encourage you to conform. So therefore, if uh, you say to me, I, we want to have a 43% reduction in emissions by 2030 and I'm in the renewable energy business, what do you think my response will be? That's it. That's it. There's a it for you. I mean, the other part of this manifesto, which is manifest in society, lower the cultural status. Think whether this is happening. The wider acceptance of pornography and obscenity in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, TV. We are already there. Correct. And then they said, make the United States the primary target, but spread it to all parts of the Western world. Now, the weakness of Biden, of course, makes it open season, but Australia has opened its doors to this stuff and there's no excuse for that, is there? There is no excuse. And rather than constantly criticise Australia, which is doing 10 times more per capita than the average of the, of the uh, people of this world to reduce their emissions, rather than being critical of us, we ought to be looking to China, which is yeah. erecting 43 yeah. new coal-fired power stations and increasing its coal production by 300 million yes. tonnes a year. Yes, protests outside the Chinese embassy. I mean, Prime Minister Morrison failed true liberal values. He said he had no interest in the debate about Australia's growing wokeness. His words, there's a lot of talk about all this, and if people are woke enough or they're not woke enough or they're too woke, who cares? God, someone's got to care, Morris. Who does care? Well, the thing that the, uh, obviously escaped the, uh, the, last, the former Prime Minister is that if you don't have markets, if you don't have the ability of individuals to decide their own future, you end up in a communist state, which essentially is where we are moving. And I know people say, oh, that's fanciful, that's too extreme. But we are moving in that direction where on all sides we are being harassed as yes. to what we should be being. Yep. We're being told we've got to buy yep. well, electric vehicles. Yes, but, but the worry is with our kids. I mean, indoctrinated children take days off school to protest in favour of Black Lives Matter and climate change. Correct. And my own granddaughters uh, who go to a, a good Catholic school had a minute's silence for Black Lives Matter a couple of years ago when those demonstrations were about. Yeah, and when Black Lives Matter rioters in America caused widespread bloodshed and looting and property damage. The world's media characterised them as mostly peaceful 
and justified. I mean, in the military, we've got gender equity benchmarks. The Australian Defence Force wanted to mark the International Day against homophobia. This government's reinstated that. I mean, where is this going and how is it to be stopped? Well, you know, the, the Chinese certainly aren't having these sorts of discussions no. in their military. But the other point I would make too, we are continuing to abrogate responsibility for our own lives. The latest move is to allow the World Health Organization, which was complicit with China in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, to allow them in future to determine what, we, what our reactions should be, how we should respond to any future pandemic. Mm. You write chillingly in that essay, and I'll say it slowly, Morris Newman writes this, this corporate behaviour, because the corporates are tied up with all this as Absolutely. well. They won't lend unless you want the appropriate climate change policy, and they're all in bed, all the big gutless corporates out there. Yes, you lot. Oh, yes, they give the tick to Alba, give the tick to Chris Bowen, all go over the cliff together. Morris Newman writes in his essay, this corporate behaviour is eerily reminiscent of Germany in the 1930s. In his secret diary, journalist Sebastian Hafner wrote, there are few things as odd as the calm, superior indifference in which I and those like me watched the beginnings of the Nazi revolution in Germany as if from a box in the theatre. Morris, indifference is alive in Australia, is it not? It is alive, Alan. And what we are dealing with, as we were saying a little earlier, is essentially a cartel. And it's self-reinforcing and it's self-rewarding. And for the ordinary person, it's very, very difficult to do much about that. And as we know that uh, we get rid of uh, the former coalition government, we install a Labor government, but if we were to get a Liberal government back again, it would be an echo of the Labor government. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's no, there's no uh, rollback. Well, we, we'll, they won't cop that on this program, I can tell you, <laughs> or on this ADH. But we'll just end where we began. Just think of this. This is the founder, Morris has been there, Morris Newman, this founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, quote, the pandemic, this was last year, the coronavirus, represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect reimagine and reset our world. And Morris, they have a shot at that at every Davis conference and every climate change conference, and we become blind followers. Well done, Morris, always good to talk to you. That's a splendid essay, by the way, because Thank he you. does say in his essay, as the West careers down the road to serfdom, driven by ever more, this is Morris Newman, ever more reckless governments, the opportunity for a U-turn becomes more difficult. Mm. Yeah. How much more difficult, I would say, when the leader of the free world is a cognitively deficient Joe Biden. Morris, great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your scholarship. We'll talk again. Thanks very much, Alan. There is Morris Newman, a fine Australian and a fine mind. You know, I sometimes wonder how parents cope in the modern world. The pressures are unbelievable. I was watching an interview last night that Donald Trump gave before he offered his candidature for the presidency. He was asked how in such a busy corporate life, as a parent, his children seem so self-assured and seemingly free of many of the problems of modern youth. To which Mr. Trump replied that since they were old enough to understand, and he cited the age of five, he drummed into them, no drugs, no alcohol, no cigarettes. He jokingly said that if it had been in today's world, he would have added no tattoos. But he repeated, no drugs, no alcohol, no cigarettes. And that's how his children have lived their lives. Yet here we are every day in this country reading of this deadly drug scourge. Only the last couple of days, the Australian Border Force, the old customs, carried out the largest drug haul in Australian history, stopping an estimated $1.6 billion worth of methyl amphetamine from hitting the streets. That's ice. 1,800 kilograms of the drug concealed in shipments of marble, mar marble slab tiles at Port Botany in Sydney South. The New South Wales Police worked alongside international intelligence, but have acknowledged that the syndicate was operating locally on our shores with international connections. What is a mystery to most of us is that we never seem to work out who is Mr Big in all of this. The criminals are sophisticated in their operation. Marble slabs and a vintage luxury car were used as the vessels to bring drugs into Sydney. And the audacity of individuals who think they can get away with it. Thankfully, there are X-rays and new technology which can identify this stuff. 
But the drugs were bound for a warehouse in West Homebush where mid-range dealers would take possession. But again, who is Mr Big? A vintage Bentley was found to contain 161 kilograms of ice and 30 kilograms of cocaine. The car was shipped into Sydney in a shipping container from Canada. And then at the weekend, the nightmare story of a parent, a mother with two daughters addicted to ice and the behaviour that follows. As the mother plaintively said, quote, there have been knives to the throat, threats to stab the entire family. I've been punched and kicked, had holes punished in the walls. This very slow, horrible journey of watching them seek, sink deeper and deeper into this is tortuous. Forlornly, she asked what the government was doing. Well, I can answer that, absolutely nothing. The former Crown Prosecutor, Professor Don Howard, who spent 14 months heading the ICE inquiry almost four years ago, has pleaded with the New South Wales government to stop, quote, sitting on its hands and find the, quote, political courage to act on the recommendations from his inquiry. It's been 30 months since Professor Howard travelled the state of New South Wales, gathering detailed expert evidence from clinicians, quote, in the trenches and on the front line, from people with lived experiences. He heard, he said, harrowing evidence from Indigenous community members. He made 109 recommendations, but we've heard nothing from the New South Wales government, and it's almost four years since the inquiry, and Professor Howard questioned whether New South Wales government ministers have even read the report. He said, why they can't read and understand that this is coming from a range of deeply well-qualified experts, I think it can only be that they haven't read it or don't care about it, and that would be depressing, or they don't have the courage to grasp the nettle, unquote. 109 recommendations. Ice addiction, since the report, has increased. The number of deaths is in the 400 vicinity every year. It has permeated all walks of life, and as Professor Howard said, talking to victims, quote, I'm haunted not only by their pleas for help, but also by the lack of action from government, unquote. Ice usage has moved into ordinary suburbs. Young people are making it their drug of choice. And there's medical evidence to show one use is enough to put users on the road to addiction. The evidence establishes that there is a higher risk of violence amongst users and the rates of crime associated with the drug is off the charts. There's a lack of rehabilitation and detox facilities in every city and town across New South Wales. It would be the same across Australia. Why has nothing happened in four years? And the answer is, no one seems to know. There was a budget brought down in New South Wales early this year by that genius Matt Keane, money thrown everywhere, not a cent, for drug reform. And Premier Perrottet said in June, Thursday, September, he said in June, the response would be delivered very shortly. I think Professor Howard's observations are unarguable. New South Wales has now acquired an embarrassing reputation as a laggard state for its decrepit drug and alcohol policy. The Attorney-General Mark Speakman says the New South Wales government's response to the ICE inquiry and associated funding remains under active consideration, unquote. Well, perhaps the government can answer one question. How many more families have to be torn apart before the issue becomes a top priority? The government went through the process of seeking advice on how to handle the epidemic, the ICE epidemic. They failed to do anything with the information they have collected. That in itself, in my opinion, is a crime against society. Well, let's go to Pauline Hanson again, who on critical issues, contrary to what you might read or hear, Pauline Hanson is a voice of common sense. There are two concerns about this voice to parliament. The first is that people are being polled and sampled, but they've got no idea of any of the detail. It's just a blind date. If I don't know the detail, I will be voting no, I'm telling you now. The second point is this, you alter the constitution, you just can't change it tomorrow by going into the parliament if you suddenly think you've made a mistake. So this is a massive decision to be taken. As I will be saying over and over again, the Prime Minister wants, in relation to his predecessor, transparency and accountability. We've got neither on this issue. You will recall last week I asked Pauline several questions to which I knew she, along with me, and 17.2 million voting Australians would have no answers on The Voice. For example, what will The Voice actually do? No one knows. 
Who will be able to stand as a candidate? No one knows. Who will be able to vote? No one knows. Will there be any elections? No one knows. Will it be advisory? No one knows. Will it have legislative powers? No one knows. If so, what will they be? Don't know. Will they pay their own way or be on parliamentary salaries? Don't know. Will the voice be subject to the courts and ordinary laws? We don't know. Will it exist forever or will it be a fixed term? No one knows. Are we going to have an electoral roll for the voice based on race? Where only run one race can vote? No one knows. Will we have a special set of laws for one class of the community? No one knows. Let's bring Pauline back in. Pauline, thank you for your time again. I note a story that support for The Voice has fallen since the May election. What do you make of this former NBA star and multimillionaire Shaquille O'Neal spruiking The Voice to Parliament? Oh, Alan, don't get me started on this. I couldn't believe it when I read this and saw what was going on. Albanese, I'm telling you, is a bloody idiot to have actually got this man who was a former star, football and basketball star, out of there for 11 years. They brought him on stage here thinking that he would get support for The Voice. He didn't even answer the media's questions. He's got nothing to say about it because he wouldn't even know what it's about. They've used him as a stunt, Linda Burney and the Prime Minister. Well, if Albanese thinks that's what being a Prime Minister of this country is, to get a referendum up with voice in Parliament, he has no idea. I think it's disgusting. And it's also a slap in the face to all those Ab Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islander people out there who he could have stood beside and got the support from the people for the voice in Parliament. He's just lost it mm. by doing that, by putting this... African-American who has no idea about our politics, has no idea what the Constitution is about here in Australia, and to put him up as, hey, this is the man who's pushing for the voice in Australia. I think Good it's right. disgusting. I agree with you, Pauline, and so do most yeah. Australians, I think. Look, you know, the propaganda has started because the polls have come out and 57% of Australians supposedly support the voice to Parliament. Do these people know what they are supporting? I mean, Jacinta Price, who'll speak to Fred Paul in the next hour, rightly said on this issue that Mr Albanese was, quote, out of touch with the needs of Aboriginal Australians. And Pauline, I think Jacinta summed it up, did she not, when she said, I don't think it's good enough to take our founding document so casually by changing it on the basis of no detail, emotional blackmail, and because the world is watching. About sums it up, doesn't it, Pauline? I think Australians actually know what they're voting on with this. Australians have lost contact with or interest in politics. A lot of Australians don't even know what the Constitution is. They've never read it. They have no idea. This played on a person's emotions. This is being played on racial division. And this is all being played on about Black Lives Matters and about the invasion, what happened in Australia, that we're actually going to support and look after the Aboriginal people. That is not the truth here. And that's why Australians need to know what this is all about. I don't believe that 57%, 57% that actually support no. this. I don't believe that at all. Mm. When Tom Carmer uh, the co-designer of The Voice says, quote, Indigenous populations of the world are looking closely at this and how we respond with celebrities and everyday people to get involved and become advocates. Uh, people like Mr Karma are thinking that Australians can be led by the nose without knowing where that leading is taking us. That's what these people think. They go in, out and drag a celebrity on the scene um, and push their, like, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, all this type of thing, and they're going to get people on board with it. I hope people are a lot smarter than that because what we're looking at is a change to our country, to our constitution, to our parliament, to our democracy. People must see beyond this. Get over the fact it's emotional and thinking that oh, you're going to help these people. No one can help them but themselves. It's not about money. There's been billions and billions of dollars, over $30 billion a year thrown at this. It's about time people took responsibility for themselves and their own actions. No voice to parliament is going to change anything unless the people themselves want to change their lives. 100%. Pauline, I suppose we can understand why we won't be given any detail because I suppose if we got answers to some of those questions I asked, people would certainly vote no. Vote no with it. And um, we're not going to be given that information. You know, it's, this is a rush. We're putting it through and, and uh, I hope that 
with your your um, show there and you're explaining it to people. I will be explaining it to people. There's other ones just set a price. Warren Mundine. There are people out there yes. who want the people of Australia to know the truth before they go and cast their vote mm. and the impact it's going to have on them and future generations. Absolutely. Now, Malcolm Turnbull originally said that it was neither desirable, his words, nor capable of winning acceptance, his words, in a referendum. They said that an Indigenous voice to Parliament would have been, quote, contrary to the principles of equality and citizenship. And he said the model put forward by the Referendum Council was, quote, not desirable. In October 2017, he said he was the Prime Minister, his government, quote, does not believe such an addition to our national representative institutions is either desirable or capable of winning acceptance in a referendum. Then he changed his mind early this month, but at least he did right, quote, the debate has not yet begun and the vast majority of people have no idea what it involves. And he wrote, while I'll vote yes in a referendum, I'll do so with some misgivings. He doesn't seem to know what side he's on, Pauline. <laughs> That's exactly right, Alan. Here is the former Prime Minister of this country. He comes out openly and says it won't work, he's got misgivings about it and, and what the implications it's going to have. Now all of a sudden he's changed his mind, he still has misgivings about it, but he said he'll vote, vote for it. That is not what we want to hear. Give us the information. Let us know what we're voting for. And really, would you listen to what Malcolm Turnbull has to say? Alan, I've had discussions with him on different issues and about building the railway line. I won't go into detail. But he didn't have any idea about building an a nation that has our own assets that's going to make it wealthy for this country. And he said, no, you should let the corporate sector do it. So I don't have any trust or faith in Malcolm Turnbull and what he stands for. He goes with the wind, whichever way it's blowing. And that's why he's no longer prime minister of this country. Absolutely. He also said, I might add, there are powerful and legitimate arguments against it. I mean, there is the question about equality too, I must say, and I'll canvas this with you next week, Pauline, because in a referendum, the government must publish a yes and a no case so that both sides are presented to the voters. Equal money spent on each. Are we going to get that, Pauline? We don't know. Well, I doubt it very much because they're saying that if you give equal money to the side that's for the no vote, then it won't get up. Isn't it funny? Why do they feel that? Because you really are going to be able to inform people. That's what we need. Mm. Good on you. Listen, leave it there. We'll talk next week. Keep going strongly. You're not saying anything unreasonable. You can't vote for a project you know nothing about. Simple as that. That's all you're saying. That's all I'm saying. He's just asking me to vote for something and I know nothing about it. Then the answer is no. Good to talk to you, Pauline, the agent of common sense. Keep at it. Keep finding the energy. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> Isn't she wonderful? Here she is, Pauline Hanson. Well, I'm sure this won't please you, but Australia's eastern states are being warned to brace for more rain. We've barely recovered from the devastating floods of February and July, but we're told a third successive La Nina is on the way. Not that weather bureaus ever get it right, but we are told another wet spring and summer. That's the bad news. The good news, wherever you are across Australia or indeed across the world listening to me, come to Sydney. Get yourself to Sydney in the Opera House for a brand new and magnificent production of The Phantom of the Opera. As one reviewer rightly described it, menace meets innocence. The Phantom, magnificently sung by Josh Pitterman, brings a thrilling dark voice to strong, physically blending menace, malice, vulnerability, as he seeks from the bowels of the Paris Opera, the love of Christine. And doesn't Amy Manford provide some glorious singing? Blake Bowden's splendid row, competing with the Phantom, a damaged character obsessed with the young singer Christine. Perhaps we've all seen it before, but you can never see it often enough. The gondolier crossing the underground lake, which actually does exist under the Paris Opera, as the Phantom leads Christine into his candle-lit lair. A magnificent production, an extraordinary singing. Not as grand was the opening last night of the brand new Allianz Stadium at Moore Park in Sydney, reminding us that life is more than beer and circuses, which brings me to a point I made earlier. There have been some extraordinarily generous puff pieces about the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. He is a very decent man, unpretentious. He's now dressed immaculately and to date has said all the right things, except that he seemed to be running from one VIP jet to another. 
Then after two weeks of Parliament, he took a one-week holiday because he said he hadn't had a holiday in three years when many of his 26 million Australian colleagues have never been able to afford a holiday at all. And his prime focus seems to be against the former Prime Minister, as if this is what they're talking about in the pubs. No PM. What they're talking about is what Heather McIntyre from Penrith was talking about at the weekend, her massive grocery bill climbing every week. Milk used to be $3 for three litres. It's now $4.50. Heather McIntyre's got a big family. She buys 45 litres a week. That's $67 just for milk. Bread was $1.50 a loaf. PM, it's now $3.50. Some boxes of cereals are now $10. These people are not talking about Scott Morrison. They're talking about rampant inflation in the supermarkets. They're worried about the petrol price because another 24 cents a litre is coming to the Bowser very soon. They're worried about the looming energy crisis, electricity and gas bills. But PM, you knew all of this, but in the election you said there'd be a $275 cut in electricity bills. Since that promise was made, you'd need to deliver a cut of $700 to $800 to make up for the rise in energy prices. PM, a tenth of your term is over. And all we've got to show for it is that we're going to have 82% renewables by 2030. Meanwhile, while we castigate the former Prime Minister for his secrecy, what the energy policy, if that's what you could call it, would cost to our living standards has not been revealed to us because, of course, you don't have a clue. Is it a secret when you want accountability and transparency, but not on energy policy? Nonetheless, our corporate leaders fall into line with this stuff. Their willful stupidity matched only by their sycophantic indulgence of whomever is in government, business, gutless. Some people are receiving notices already from electricity suppliers that the cost of power to their home will increase by 23% from September 1 this week. But PMU said the costs would reduce by $275 per annum if you were elected. So at this so-called jobs summit this week, will you tell us what's happened to this promise? Will you tell us how many jobs will be sacrificed in the so-called energy transition? I speak every week here to Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. They have done a splendid analysis of the economic and employment consequences of net zero emissions. That is the minimum cost if we go to net zero by 2050. And the analysis tells us that Australia will forego 478,000 new jobs, particularly in regional Queensland and New South Wales, and $274 billion in economic development if the bipartisan Liberal National Labor, the Teals and the Greens want it much earlier than that, but if that target is to be achieved by cancelling all new coal, gas and oil projects. So if all our resource projects are under investigation and they're to be cancelled, there's the figure, nearly 500,000 jobs that would have been created. Tell us, Prime Minister, or is the cost of all this a secret? Will Queensland lose over 220,000 jobs, 8.4% of its workforce? Will the Hunter Newcastle region New South Wales lose 22,000 potential new jobs? Will Western Australia lose $115 billion in investment foregone and 186,000 jobs? Come on, Prime Minister, you're about accountability and transparency. We're entitled to answers to these questions, but I suspect, unfortunately, that you don't have them. Look, before we go, I can't stress, and that's why I'm banging on a bit about it, the importance of this energy issue enough. Nor can I stress the fact that, in my view, we're going in the wrong direction, but no one in government is prepared to turn around and go back. Let me amplify one or two points. At the current rates of production, Australia has enough coal to last us for 398 years. Luckily, we didn't listen to the experts at the CSIRO who advised the Australian government to halt the development of the Hunter and Bowen Basin coal fields in the 1960s because they believed there wasn't enough coal to export to Japan. In 2013, the ABC reported that an exploration company found, quote, up to 233 billion barrels of oil, unquote, in the north of South Australia. The man who found the oil, Link Energy Chief Executive Peter Bond said, so if you took the 233 billion barrels, well, you're talking Saudi Arabia numbers. It's massive. It's just huge. Now we're dependent 
on imported fuel that travels through the South China Sea, where the Chinese Communist Party has military bases built on top of coral islands. When it comes to gas, Australia has proven reserves equivalent to 43.9 times our annual consumption. We have more uranium than any other country on earth. And yet we've got sky high energy prices and the situation is only going to get worse. The numbers are clear. In 1998, the average price for wholesale power in New South Wales was $28 per megawatt hour, 1998. The figure, I've adjusted that figure for inflation. Now the average price for wholesale power is $150 per megawatt hour, a whopping 435% increase in 24 years. The response from politicians, pathetic posturing and virtue signaling and ideological rubbish. I mentioned earlier in the program, Snowy Hydro 2.0. Well, this morning, the Australian energy market operator said, delays in the giant Snowy 2.0 expansion, together with coal station closures, have sparked fresh fears of power shortages. And this dope Bowen knows nothing about this and has no answers. This comes after Victoria's new Tesla battery in Geelong operated for 16 hours before bursting into flames and sending toxic smoke across suburban areas. That was last year. The fire took three days to fully extinguish, meaning the battery burnt for longer than it produced power. Green hydrogen's an even bigger furphy. To make one tonne of green hydrogen, you need 20 tonnes of clean water. Generators need to use energy to extract the hydrogen before it can be used, after which you get about 30% of the energy and the rest gets dispersed. For instance, hydrogen has got to be compressed to 700 times atmospheric pressure, which requires a huge amount of energy. Then it has to be liquefied down to minus 283 degrees Celsius. Meanwhile, Clive Palmer's plan to build a high efficiency, low emissions coal-fired power plant in central Queensland has been dismissed by the Albanese government and rubbished by the media as some sort of joke. When will common sense prevail or do we have to wait for blackouts until the political class finally wakes up? Do we have to wait for more businesses to go broke and more people to use their jobs before we ditch the net zero suicide note? Or will they continue their long ideological march to net zero, regardless of the human, economic and social costs? Well, I'm telling you this, I hope I'm around when the energy vandals are held to account. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll be back tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH TV. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.